Hello, everyone. You're listening to tonight's history cast where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's history department. In this episode of Night's History Cast, I had the prestigious honor and pleasure of having a podcast conversation with former Senator Mel Martinez, who served on the U.S. Senate from 2005 to 2009, representing the state of Florida. He was the first ever Cuban-American to serve in the United States Senate. He was also the first ever Cuban-American to be a part of a president's cabinet, this president being George W. Bush. He was also the former mayor of Orange County before his time as a, as a, as a senator, uh, which is here in Orlando, Florida, from 1998 to 2001. And then to top all that off, he was also a Pedro Pan. And given all those credentials and all those life experiences that he has accumulated over time, this was just an amazing conversation. So we talked about his time, his life in Cuba, the conditions that were present at that time. And then we talked about his experience going through this operation and how that profoundly impacted his life and later on his career. And it was just an amazing conversation. These, This little mini-series that I've been so grateful to to produce uh, on Operacion Pedro Pan, um, the two-day event that happened here at UCF at the end of March, are quickly becoming some of my favorites that I've ever produced as uh, the podcast producer for Night's History Cast, you know, and, and for several different reasons, partly because... This topic hits close to home, as I mentioned a lot of times in these episodes, and even before that, I'm not Cuban, um, I'm Colombian, but I was born and raised in Miami, and everyone that I know in my personal life is prim- is mainly Cuban, and I just love the Cuban people, I love Miami, and this story is very much centered on that, on that dynamic, and, you know, arguably more importantly, this is just a story that doesn't get talked about enough, it gets very overlooked. And it's very underappreciated, not just within history circles, but in the common arena, which is which is where it needs to be more uh, more well known. Kind of mentioned it here in this very episode that, you know, talking about this event with people here in Orlando, they were just totally not aware of what I was even talking about. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to this event and do a podcast on this event. And they're like, wait, what is Operation Peter Pan? And I was like, oh, no. So it's like so I'm very happy that. I've been able to produce this little mini series, getting differing perspectives on it, you know, from scholars to people that actually went through it to the organizers of the event. It's been great. This podcast is an amazing listen. I hope you enjoy it. I know you will enjoy it. So enough of me talking and cue that music. Hello everyone, this is Sebastian Garcia from Night's History Cast, and today I have the prestigious honor and pleasure to talk with former Senator Mel Martinez, who was elected to the United States Senate in 2004, representing Florida as a U.S. Senator. He served on several committees, including banking, housing, and urban affairs, armed services, and foreign affairs. Not only was he the first Cuban-American to serve in a president's cabinet, he was also the first Cuban-American to serve in the Senate. Mel Martinez was also the mayor of Orange County here in Orlando, Florida, prior to his term as a senator, and he also practiced law for 25 years. He received both his BS and JD from Florida State University, and we are going to talk about his early life as he was a part of Operacion Pedro Pan, Initially, he wasn't going to be part of the UCF event that took place, but 
that that didn't happen but i was still able to get him so this is really cool for me so thank you um senator i really do appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be with me a real pleasure my pleasure to be with you and thank you for the opportunity to talk about that little interesting piece of history yes indeed so let's get right to it so just you know you you left when you were 15 correct correct yes so what what was the conditions in cuba like you know as a 15 year old that's pretty old enough to remember vividly compared to some of the other children that left that were a little bit younger. So just talk to us a little bit about what yeah. the conditions in Cuba at that time. So by, by the time I left, I was already in high school and had completed three years of high school, slightly different system than here, but very similar. And, and uh, I had an opportunity to really live through the upheaval of the Castro revolution and really do have memories even of what was going on before the, the Castro revolution. And so, you know, politically Cuba was very unstable. There were a lot of problems and I could just sense that in the sense of, you know, public safety was not assured. There were demonstrations, there were, um, you know, gunfire and things of that nature, which tend to bring about a lot of uncertainty in a young person's life. After the revolution began, there was a period of euphoria where there was a lot of good feeling about it, but not long after that, it became clear that it was going in a very totalitarian and communist direction. And there were a lot of issues with that. So personally, I was impacted by the closing of my Catholic school where I had attended and had gone to school from K until the 11th grade when it was closed. I, and, and, you know, it was essentially a, an attack on religious uh, practices and essentially an atheistic government, as the communist governments touted themselves in those days particularly, was being imposed in Cuba. And that was pretty incompatible with uh, my faith and basically what was happening in my life and in the life of a lot of people like me. And so there was also the fear that the government was becoming much more totalitarian, uh, that there was going to be a military draft, which eventually happened, and that, in fact, parents were going to lose control over their children. They already were losing control over their education because you couldn't have a choice of where to send them to school. But, you know, that was part of it. It was essentially the state becoming the essentially the parent in place of the normal parent-child situation. So my parents were frightened by this. I was essentially non-conforming to the system as it was being implemented uh, by nature of my faith and the way I've been raised and everything else. And so as a result of the fear of you know, uh, being inducted into the military at age 16, I was now approaching 14, I mean, I was 14 approaching 15, and also a fear of losing parental rights over your children and essentially a sense that there was no tolerance for any dissent in the system that was being imposed. Uh, my parents heard about Operation Operación Pedro Pan, and it seemed to them like a reasonable thing to do for me to join that program and leave Cuba. Now, I have to tell you that the anticipation at that time was that there would never be a long-term situation in terms of the revolutionary government, the communist government was being implemented because we were at the height of the Cold War. And I think there was a great feeling that the United States would intervene at some point or something would happen to where it would not be uh, allowed for the Cuban government to continue on this path of communism and alliance with 
the Soviet Union, which seemed like a real threat to the United States. And so when my parents sent me, they didn't anticipate that they'd be sending me forever, and nor did they anticipate that I would be here forever. So they were fully thinking that I would be back in a few months. And um, not too long after I left, they realized that not only was this maybe not going to happen, they also realized that they needed to perhaps arrange things to leave themselves. So they sent my brother, who was uh, four years younger, with my aunt and uncle who left at that time. When I came, we had no family here. And so everything kind of evolved that way. And I came, uh, uh, they were not able to leave for four years uh, after I had arrived. So I essentially was a, a Peter Pan kid, uh, Pedro Pan, for four years until I was able to be reunited with my parents at age 19 at that point. And when you arrived, you first arrived at the camp in Miami and then was sent to Orlando with a foster family? Or what was your experience? Well, uh, there was another step in between. Yeah, I, I was first sent to a camp in Miami, Camp Matecumbe, which was where all boys my age were sent at that time. And it was very crowded and there were a lot of us there. Uh, you know, in total, there were 14,400 some odd children that came under Operation Pedro Pan. I, um, after a month and a half or so there, I was sent to another children's camp in Jacksonville. And not too long after being there, three months, I think it was, um, we were then placed in foster homes. And I was placed in Orlando in a foster home. I lived in two different foster homes during my time with, with, without parents. And, you know, those four years that you were here essentially by yourself, those are very developmental years for anybody, 15 through 19. Those are very yeah. transformative years. So what was it like for you being in this in a completely new country, completely by yourself and just adjusting to life? What was that like for you? Well, it was really difficult because, you know, I had lost... Uh, my anchors, I mean, my parents, you know, I had lived, I lived in a small city in Sao La Grande. It wasn't a big metropolis and, um, you know, tight knit family. And I never had really traveled with our family or spent much time away from them. And so it was a rude awakening to now land in another country and realize, particularly after I joined the foster family, that I really spoke no English, that I really didn't understand the culture or or really have a clue of what I had just walked into. You know, very welcoming country, very welcoming people. I mean, I could never have succeeded as I have in any other environment, I don't think, but in the U.S. in the US of A. But it was still very confusing at first. Uh, I was very, very homesick for several weeks. And, uh, you know, just I, I think confusion is the way I've described it before. And I think it's a pretty good way of describing it because you just... I mean, all your all your moorings have been removed, all your usual contact points, all your usual senses of security have been removed, and now everything is different, and nothing is like it was. And so, I really, um, I, I really struggled for several months. You know, it took me a while to really begin to 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 develop and thrive as a new person in a new place, and and begin to deal with my circumstances. Yeah, and and another thing, when I was talking to another um, Pedro Pan, she was telling me that by the time her parents did come to the United States, she was a completely different person, and you know it took yeah. some time to 
for the parents and the kid that like that dynamic to you know get be articulated in the present context so what what was it like for you when your parents finally arrived no no question i mean that's a very incisive and i'm sure her experience and mine which i think we you know a lot of pedro pans share very common experience but that was the case i mean i was a 15 year old kid barely 15 wet behind the ears by the time they got here i was 19 i was in college i spoke english i knew my way around the u.s uh and i, I mean the florida for sure i mean i you know i hadn't been around florida other than florida but i mean i i understood the culture i understood where i was i was comfortable in my environment i had survived four years with foster homes wonderful people by the way that doesn't imply that there was any significant suffering other than my own separation from my family in the time that I was in the foster homes. Right. Obviously, you have to adjust to a different life, a different family, a different way of doing things and all of that. So there were big adjustments, but I was always well cared for in my foster homes. Uh, but you are a very different person. And not only that, your parents now are walking into a culture and a language that is different from theirs. And you become essentially their anchor. You become their translator. You become their person who's helping them negotiate a job. All of that now falls on you. And it's a very unnatural role for parent-child because we now became essentially their, not, not their parent, but we became their guidance and their direction. And they, I mean, my dad, I think from that point forward, the rest of our lives, he never made a consequential decision without first checking it with me, you know? And I mean, we developed that kind of thing. I mean, you know, he was going to buy a car. He'd talk to me about it uh, just for years later. I mean, you know, and, and so that just, he, he always, I mean, I became a, a source of security and guidance for them, which was just a very different relationship. But in addition to that, there's also a human part that I look different. I was, you know, more of more of a grown face as opposed to a more childlike face. Right. Uh, you know, my my experience now had given me I mean, they had lived through four years of deprivation and suffering by separation and all of that. They were different. I certainly was different just by growth and maturity. And so it, it took a little while to kind of get to a comfortable place again. Uh, the parent-child relationship was never, again, normal as it would have been. It was always a little different because of the way things evolved and happened. Right. And how influential was your foster families in your understanding of American culture? Oh, I, they were they were essential. I mean, they were terrific. Uh, you know, they really were patient in teaching me the language. You know, the kids in school helped with that a lot, too, because you... Uh, you know, can only get laughed at so many times before you go, oh, okay, I'm not saying that again. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a brutal process, you know. Uh, there was no English as a second language programs. It was more like uh, learn and survive or don't learn and sink, you know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the cruelty of children in school was a tremendous incentive to learn English. But anyway, they, they really did bring me along and it was just living with them. You know, they, we didn't have classes on cultural differences or any of that but it was just basically you know i mean homecoming happens at school and i'm thinking what is this what happens now and you know they very kindly walked me through what was happening and you know i mean it was a 
uh, learning experience along the way and to those little niches of life that seem so normal, but that are really not. I mean, I remember I had two foster brothers. I remember going to my first football game with them and, and, and having him uh, either that or on TV, essentially coaching me on, on football, you know, and uh, the, the very unique things about these huddles and the 10 yards and, you know, all of the little things about a simple game of football that was so completely foreign and different that I knew nothing about. So, you know, the, the great breakthrough for me socially and so forth came when I began to play sports, by the way, speaking of that, mm. um, I played baseball and basketball in Cuba mm. and I loved to play sports. It was a big, big part of my life. And so when I got here, I, you know, at some point I wanted, I mean, immediately kind of wanted to do that, you know? Right. And so once I was able to, in high school, participate in high school sports, it was a wonderful door opener. It's a wonderful way of acculturating and really immersing myself into the way of life of a new place. And the acceptance from other kids became much more uh, there. I developed lifelong friendships. Mm-hmm. And they helped me a lot to bring me along, you know, again, sometimes by their cruelty, but, you know, you you learn. And so we got along and it was great. And it really made a big difference. Sports made a big difference in my life. That's awesome to hear that. I'm also a big sports guy. I also played, um, I played basketball in high school as well. And I, I, I couldn't agree with you more how sports could be that, you know, that medium essentially to just like you said, be fully immersed in a culture and in a welcoming environment. Um, So that's that's cool to hear. I I did not know that about you. Nothing nothing like a locker room or a really tough practice. (laughs) All of a sudden you come together, you know what I mean? Exactly, exactly. Exactly. When the coach yells at everybody the same, you you all kind of bond. Yeah. That was a wonderful thing for me. Yeah. Yeah, They became my friends, my guidepost. And as I said, you know, really friends for life. That's awesome. That's awesome to hear. What uh, I'm curious, what what position did you play in baseball and basketball? Well, I was uh, I'm, I'm a pretty tall guy, so I was uh, very tall for a Cuban, and I excelled in basketball in Cuba. I so I played um, I played a, a small forward, I guess you would call it, or a forward. You know, I mean, I'm maybe a strong forward. The terminology has evolved since then, but mm-hmm. I was a low post. I guess that would be mm-hmm. another way of looking at it, talking about it. And um, I wasn't a great shooter, but I was a strong rebounder, and I could block a shot too with my long arms. <laughs> so that all kind of uh, helped. Yeah. And then I, I was, uh, I played catcher in first base in baseball. Nice. And I, I could hit a ball. Yeah. I, I think hitting the ball was, you know, since you're talking sports here, <laughs> I think, uh, I think I was uh, fairly good with a bat, you know, and that, that always allowed people to think of you differently and give you more respect. You right. Know, a line drive speaks loud. exactly yeah for sure uh yeah yeah. i think when you hit a line drive you hit a line drive you don't have an accent (laughs) (laughs) that's funny um but uh, yeah i how tall are you i'm really curious oh i'm six two six two yeah six two and a half yeah that that is pretty pretty tall yeah for a cuban i'm pretty tall right (laughs) yeah you are um I I mean I was born and raised in Miami. I'm not Cuban, I'm Colombian, but um you know, being in Miami my whole life born and raised, I feel like I'm practically Cuban. All my friends are Cuban, my girlfriend's yeah. Cuban. 
Yeah, there's yeah. not there's not that many six two cube. I mean, I have a couple friends that are pretty tall. I'm six four, I'm, so I'm I'm tall too for yeah. a Colombian. Well, you are real tall. Yeah. yeah, you're very tall for a Colombian yes. too. By the way. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I definitely understand where you're coming from with that. Yeah, well, that, that's awesome. So, so when you when you're here in, as a 15 year old and growing up in those four years, going through school was you know getting into practicing law. Was that ever like? Did you know that from the start, or was that something that develop slowly over time no it, it really develops slowly over time i really had no well first of all i should tell you a little historical facts as we're at on a ucf podcast when i graduated from high school i went to visual Moore high school mm. and when i graduated from high school ucf had not opened its doors yet mm. so i went to florida state and proud of it you know and all of that but i didn't have an option to go to ucf which would have been much more affordable and easier for me had I been able to do that, you know, right. particularly after my parents arrived. But anyway, so just to give you some historical perspective is that UCF is still a, a young university, a new university, but a tremendous asset to our community and a great help to a lot of kids in Florida to have a great school to go to. So, but anyway, I um, didn't really anticipate that that was where I was headed. I, um, I majored in college in international affairs because I had been so touched by the Cold War and all that had happened in my life. And I had a really abiding interest in history and in sort of the public life. And I, so that international affairs major was basically a history and economics major with a concentration on Latin American studies. I, uh, I was about to graduate and I really was thinking of going into banking where I ultimately ended up my career at JP Morgan, but you know, and my dad really felt like a bachelor's degree was not enough of an education. And thank goodness he was back here by then and had come to our country and he was in the U.S. And he basically gave me a pretty good kick in the rear and said, you need to continue your education. You need to do more. And concurrently with that, I had a professor at FSU who I dearly loved by the name of Ross Oglesby, who was a uh, dean of students at one point and whatever and you know one of those very special professors that took the time and talked to students and you know sometimes would even have us to his house for burgers and that kind of stuff and he um, he told me I should apply to law school that I should take the law school admission test and he honestly opened the window to me I mean my dad putting some pressure on me to do something more and then this professor essentially allowing me to think that I could do that because until that moment in time, I just didn't feel and I, 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 that I was worthy of that, that I, you know, I'm still an immigrant, I'm learning the language, I'm not as proficient in it as a, perhaps a lawyer needs to be. And I just really had not considered that that was within my grasp, that I could reach out and go to law school. I mean, that seemed like it was for someone else, was reserved for you know, someone that was a little more Anglo than me or whatever. Mm -hmm. But this professor really opened my eyes to that possibility. I went ahead and took the LSAT. I didn't do great on it because I never did well on those type of exams. When you're still learning the language, they're pretty tough. Right. And so, but anyway, I got into law school at Florida State and uh, worked for a year and a half in between and then went on to law school. And I love law school and I love law. I love practicing law and I did that for, you know, 25 years before I went into public life. And, you know, you mentioned the international relations major, which, as you said, your life and you being you living through the Cold War um, significantly 
impacted your decision in getting that major. And but w- what other things from your life did you carry over once you were in law school? Well, I mean, look, I think a tremendous amount of resiliency and self-confidence, you know, yeah. because you don't go through all the stuff that we went through as a Peter Pan and be weak need. Uh, and so, you know, I, I had a belief in myself. I had a certain, like I said, resiliency, see uh, just the, the uh, get up and go and I can do this kind of thing. And I also, frankly, I think I felt like it was important to be in the courtroom representing people who needed representation and that sort of thing. And I know it sounds lofty, but, you know, I think lawyers are idealists at heart and mm-hmm. they always feel like they can right a wrong or help someone in distress or, you know, represent someone who's been accused. And so I think those are all good things that, um, you know, come by being a lawyer. And I uh, really enjoyed it. So you practiced for 25 years. What was your decision behind going into the public life? Well, I had always had an interest in it all because it touched my life so deeply. You know? Right. And uh, anytime Castro spoke, I wanted to hear what he had to say and usually wasn't worth listening to. But, you know, you still are curious. And then I I had an interesting job when I got out of undergrad school. And before I went on to law school, I worked for the Florida Secretary of State. And so that was in the political world. And so I had learned a lot from him and had a wonderful opportunity to have a his name was Tom Adams. He was uh, Secretary of State and then later Lieutenant Governor. He was running a program that would be uh, interesting to you called the Florida Columbia Alliance. And mm-hmm. it was a sister state program, just like their sister cities, you know, Leesburg, Florida, and Cincinnati, Columbia were partners. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I got to travel in Columbia a lot and, oh, wow. and help manage this program because I was bilingual and whatnot. But a lot of it was bringing Colombian students to go to school in the U.S. and then Part of the program was to require they return to Columbia and apply the skills they had learned here. And it was particularly geared to the junior colleges. So now they're called community colleges, but to the colleges throughout the state that, you know, Valencia, Miami-Dade, and uh, they were getting two-year degrees in agriculture or whatever different things that were useful to go back home with. And so anyway, I helped run that program, and that really allowed me to travel in Latin America a little bit, Colombia particularly. And to be involved with a person who was a political figure. So I had that in my background. Mm -hmm. But then I went on to law school because I knew that was my future and I wasn't going to be a political hack. Uh, And and then after practicing law for a long time, I was always interested in the public arena. I was interested in the serving the community and giving back to the community. I did that in a lot of volunteer capacities, boards and commissions and so forth. And then ultimately... People prevailed on me to run for mayor of Orange County, and I thought it was time, and that I had the ability to do it, and so I jumped in and did that. And obviously, then one thing led to another. President Bush asked me to join him in the cabinet when he won the presidency. I had been involved in his campaign, and then there was an opportunity to run for the Senate, and I did. So, you know, it was not a lifelong path that I had planned, same as with law. Circumstances intervened, and I went with him. And, you know, you've obviously had a very renowned career and you've met a lot of different people, have done a lot of different things. How many times, this is me being curious, did the people you've interacted with, did they not know about Operation Peter Pan? Most of them. (laughs) In fact, a lot of people didn't know that I was an immigrant. Mm. You know, I mean, John McCain was talking to me. I mean, we became good friends in the Senate and he's running for president. And he he said, "I, I want you to know that I'm. 
I've got you on my list of potential vice presidents. And I have to say, John, guess what? I wasn't born in the U.S. <laughs> I can't be vice president. And look, I'm not saying that he would have offered me the job necessarily, uh -huh. but at least he was thinking about me in that context, but had no clue that, you know, I had, well, I mean, I don't know if he knew or not, but I don't think he knew anyway. Right. He wouldn't have mentioned that, you know. And so, no, yeah, I think this is uh, a bit of my past. And I mean, Bush talked about it, President Bush, you know, he thought it was an interesting story and it's been a lot said and written about it. I'd never particularly go around and put it on my sleeve, you know. Right. But I think people have known a bit about it over the years, but it's a remarkable number of people who did not know. In fact, some of my high school classmates, when I wrote a book called A Sense of Belonging, which was essentially, you know, about my life story and whatnot, and uh, some of my high school friends that I had played ball with and who knew me well, Said, I never knew all that about you. I never understood what all you were ha was happening in your life, or what you were, you know, what was actually going on. Wow. Uh, which I really thought it was rather interesting, you know, and uh, just telling that. I mean, things happen in people's lives, and sometimes nobody knows, you know. Right. Yeah, and and you know, I wanted to ask that question because I feel like being here specifically in these four years in, in UCF and um, and especially in the past month that this event was going on and me talking to people about what this event is, people that are from here, from Orlando, because people in Miami know, um, it, you know, it kind of, it kind of yeah, yeah. goes hand in hand, but I, I was talking about this event and, you know, the things I have planned. And then some people were like, well, what is, what is that? What's operation Peter Pan? I'm like, yeah, right. I'm right. like, what? Right. No, Miami kind of knows. Right. Yeah, in Miami, you know, yeah. When I was running for the Senate, in Miami, I mentioned, you know, people would mention it or whatever. Oh, he's a Peter Pan. And, it, you know, it was like, oh, my gosh, this is great. You know, mm -hmm. he's like really one of us, you know. So it was an identifier with the Cuban community. But in many places, people had no idea and no clue. And, yeah, that's the way life is. There's a quote that that I, I think it's from one of your – I think you said it. I don't know if it's written, but you it's here in this in this website. And – it says when you were retiring from the Senate, quote, having lived through the onset of tyranny in one country and played a part in the proud democratic traditions of another, I leave here today with a tremendous sense of gratitude for the opportunity to give back to the nation that I love, the nation not of my birth, but the nation of my choice. What a powerful statement. I just want to hear more about that. Your thoughts on it? Yeah, that, I mean, it came from the heart. I remember the day vividly and uh, I have not thought about it recently because it's now several years in the past. Right. But it was a very sincere feeling I had that I was really privileged to have served in the U.S. Senate and that my time there was uh, unique and interesting in every respect. You know, I was uh, first Cuban-American in the Senate, but really uh, there had not been another Hispanic immigrant in the Senate before me. Mm. Uh, there were several Hispanics, but they were all New Mexicans, you know, they were right. essentially people that were born and raised in the U.S. and had, you know, a lot of them had the culture and the traditions uh, and the language, mm -hmm. but they really were Americans. Right. You know? And so I was in a unique position and I, um, I feel very strongly about that. I mean, I gave a lot of thought to what I would say on that moment because I was walking away from the U.S. Senate, which is unusual to do. And it was such a privilege to serve and be there. I didn't want to ever have it be anything other than a very positive parting, if you will. 
Right. And uh, I was in Washington on Monday, on Tuesday of this week and, you know, went to see a number of senators on an issue. And yeah, it's just wonderful to have a chance to go back as a colleague and a friend. And, you know, I still wear my Senate pin and you can, you know, be treated as a senator when you're up there. And it's, it's very nice. I mean, yes. it's a wonderful life experience. And, you know, obviously you being an, an immigrant, what are your thoughts on how immigration has evolved, particularly in this century? So starting when you were in the Senate and now, you know, a couple of years removed from it. Yeah. Well, one of the things I worked the most diligently on during my time in the Senate was immigration reform. And I regret greatly that we were not able to pull it through, even though we came very, very, very close. Mm -hmm. This country needs to deal with the immigration problem. It's become a political football. The right will play up an open border situation like we currently have. The left will play up their benevolence about immigration. Uh, an open border doesn't work. It is wrong. It is not the way that any country can function. But there has to be an orderly system of migration, and there also has to be an allowance for the needs of our economy to have a labor force that perhaps is not here and readily available. And so, you know, uh, we were trying to have a guest worker program, which I think would make a lot of difference and would help a lot. Would workers could come work for a period of time, go back home. Uh, but, you know, it all begins with border security. There has to be a certain level of order at the border. I mean, you cannot have the current amount of disorder and complete chaos and and anticipate that, you know, that's going to solve the problem. And Wall doesn't solve the problem either, by the way. That's right. Just, that's just that's just rhetoric for for political gain. Uh, but that doesn't solve the problem either. So somewhere between serious border security and a fix to all the other problems in our immigration system ought to be a, a way to work that out. You know, I, I was just being asked yesterday to help a friend of a friend who is in Canada and is Cuban and wants to go to Miami to visit a dying father, you know, 95 years old and, you know, not in good health. But he's not a U.S. resident. You know, he has mm -hmm. a residency in Canada. He lives in Cuba part of his life. He lives in Canada part of his life. But he can't come in. And I told my friend, I said, you know, if he just worked his way down to the, Mex <laughs> to the Mexican border, he could walk in and nobody would say another word about it. And he'd be in Miami with his dad as long as he wanted to be. He's trying to do it the right way. Right. And good for him. But it's very difficult for him to do a simple thing like visiting his father in Miami for a couple of weeks and then going back to Canada or Cuba, wherever he's living at the time. And it just doesn't work. And so people... It's easier for them to just violate the law. And so that's a broken system, and it doesn't serve anyone except the partisan political purposes of people on the right and the left who use it as a political pawn. Mm -hmm. And it's too bad. I worked hard to try to fix it. I couldn't get it done. Uh, it's still there for the fixing, but I think the answers become more elusive because the political cost becomes higher. Right. And do you, how do you think something like Operación Pedro Pan would work in today's context? Would it even work? Well, no, it wouldn't work. But, you know, we have a number of children traveling alone, unaccompanied minors is what we were called. Right. That's what a lot of them are called today. And, and it's, a, it's a sad thing for these children who are coming because they don't have nearly the support and the services that I was lucky enough to have, you know. And I think a lot of 
the success that I might have enjoyed, I think, is really rooted in the the good support system that was around, the fact that the Catholic Church was involved, the fact that there were foster families to take care of us and take us in. So there was, and, and the fact that we were encouraged and allowed to go on to school, you know, and get an education. Now, nobody paid for my college, by the way. That was all on, on my own hoof, mm. as it should be. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, there, there, there was a support system to get me to that point where I could go off to college, you know, those those critical couple of years in high school. And I, I fear that a lot of children that are in a similar plight today are not being well served. You know, I was in a tragic situation. The Cold War had erupted. Cuba was in a very difficult political situation, which it still is today. Mm-hmm. And it, I was a political exile. I was not a not an economic immigrant, you know. And so there's a difference in some of that. And I think the circumstances of everyone that comes across that border are different. Right. Um, but anyway, some regulations, some orderliness about how people come would only help because it'll also help in the long run for people to be more caring about wanting to help those that are coming. Mm -hmm. You know, I think when it's chaotic, like it is now, people say, well, you know, it's too big a problem, but uh, I think it would be a very useful thing for the country. This was a question that I also asked um, the other Pedro Pan guests that I had um, that I talked to a couple weeks ago now. And it's just something that I find fascinating, especially given your your guys' perspective, I'm including her as well. And but also just my perspective on it too, because I am the literal product, the literal physical manifestation of the American dream. You know, my parents were born yep. the, their whole lives in Colombia, then they came over here in the nineties, um, for a better life. And yes, I was even though I didn't exist at that time, that they were planting the seeds for that and my my older sister and my older brother and um, so, so get, what I'm trying to ask you or get your thoughts on is, you know, what are your thoughts on the American dream? You know, something that has, you know, in my opinion, yeah. been so like thrown away. Um, and I feel like given the immigrant experience, we obviously have a different perspective towards it than people that are native to the United States. What are your thoughts on it? I, I mean, I think a lot of times people recently want to essentially besmirch that dream and that ideal right so it's no longer available and i think that's complete bunk i think every day i was talking with a friend recently about a lot of venezuelan immigrants colombian immigrants Uh, these are people that are making a difference in their lives and that that are thriving and that are help to our society Mm -hmm. and that are additive they're not they're not diminishing they're additive and so I think for people to have a better understanding of what immigration is and the potential that it carries is really rather important. I think, honestly, that the example of the success of the Cuban community, but it's not just the Cuban community. That's a tremendous Colombian community in Miami, mm-hmm. the Venezuelan community growing, Nicaraguan community. I mean, people think about the worst of immigration, but they completely overlook or don't have a clue about the dynamic city that Miami is and has become. 100%. And what impact in that city have immigrants had? You know, I mean, they've made Miami from a sleepy tourist town for three, four months a year into a dynamic international city where whether it's high tech, whether it is upscale tourism, whatever you want to call it. I mean, it, Miami is kicking butt. You right. know, it's a great place. And, and immigrants are a tremendous part of that story. And so I think Miami is emblematic 
of what can happen in a country that gives you those opportunities. And so when you say, I live the American dream, I don't believe the American dream is dead because I believe it is still available to people who frankly work hard, play by the rules, and in my case, having a great faith in God, you know? And I think those are the opportunities this country allows you because we are an egalitarian society, because we're a meritocracy, people can rise based on their merit and their worth and their skill and their hard work. And that's still alive and well. Can it be more difficult? Can there be challenges? Absolutely. But is it alive and well? Totally. And people can still achieve that American dream. Now, you know, sometimes it might be more difficult for people who were actually born in this country because of circumstances of racism, which you and I have faced. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not like that's unique to one group. Right. But, you know, perhaps there have been endemic issues in society that have made it more challenging. But that doesn't mean the American dream is not available and that it is not attainable. It may not be attainable to everyone. It isn't guaranteed, uh, but it is available and it is attainable. And I think, you know, we often beat ourselves up and I don't think we, we think as positively of our country as we should because this is a great nation and a great country. And um, we are still the beacon of hope for people around the world. Mm -hmm. You know, there are not a lot of people beating a path to get into Russia or into China or into North Korea or frankly, into Cuba. Cuba has depopulated in a dramatic way. I mean, the population of Cuba uh, today is elderly, obviously all poor, but it's elderly. Uh, they have an inverse population that is a, a tsunami of, of societal problems that are gonna be visited on Cuba because of the fact that the, the workforce has left. Young people have left, uh, left it in droves over many years now, over decades because of a failed system. And so uh, Cuba has a demographic nightmare in its hands uh, because people are not going there. People are coming here. And there's a reason why people, you know, vote with their feet, as they say, mm -hmm. you know. So it's not, it, it's, not a, it's not a guarantee, but it's not a loser either. It's available. Beautifully said. I couldn't have said it better myself. I agree with you 100%. <laughs> um, and I, and I yeah. truly do mean it. And, you know, something in that, well put answer that you gave right now was you know people looking at immigration through the worst possible lens how do you think that that discourse could change you know i mean i think i think people ought to be allowed to see the success of immigrants as a positive for our country not as a challenge to them um i i don't know it's a difficult issue because i don't think people are ill-willed but I think it can be a source of challenge sometimes. You know, difference always challenges people. And I have to say also that the amount of migration, particularly among us Latin Americans, that has occurred in the last couple of decades is a phenomenal number. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of people who migrated in here. Mm -hmm. So it takes a while for that to be absorbed. It takes a while for society to be accepting. So I would say that it's understandable that there is some pushback, some standoffishness. I think over time, those things are overcome. You know, this country today eats pizza. Uh, that was an Italian thing. <laughs> that didn't used to be part of the American thing. Uh -huh. You know, I, I heard that, in fact, I heard that uh, Mexican food has surpassed Italian as the most popular food. 
ethnic food in America. I mean, you know, I, I'm not a big Mexican food eater, frankly. We Cubans have our own little prejudices, and one of them is we like Cuban food. Yeah. We don't we don't like a lot of picante. No. You know, leave the picante no. off of my, uh, you know. Anyway, Colombians eat more similar to what we eat, yes, do, I yes. think. Yeah. The Colombia Sancocho is not exactly spicy. Right, right. right. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I don't, I'm don't. i not a big fan of the spice. But but yeah, it's, it's a great point. It takes time to to for the successes to be observed, as you said. No, I mean, I think it's a time thing. I think absorption of immigrants has been one of the magics of our country. And rather than criticize America for not being tolerant or accepting of immigrants, I think we need to understand what an amazing history of immigration we have had in this country for 200 plus years and how this country adjusts to it over time. And we as immigrants have to be understanding that we've put a lot of pressure on the system by the large numbers of Hispanic immigrants that have come here. And it's going to take a bit of time to digest and absorb that. Awesome. Yeah, beautifully but said. This country has that, that, that wonderful ability to make it all work. Yep, agreed. It's the magic about America. Yeah. Anyway, I've enjoyed it. Yes. Well, thank you very much, Senator Mel Martinez. I really appreciate your time, taking the time out of your day to talk with me. This was awesome. This was a treat. Um, first time I ever talked to a former politician, so that's pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> pretty cool nugget for me. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you, you very nice much. Your belt. Yeah, that's <laughs> a good one. No, you do a great job. You brought up a lot of good issues, and you understand the subject well, and it's been a pleasure, and thank you for having me. Okay? I appreciate it. Thank you. That was the pod. I hope you all enjoyed it. I definitely enjoyed producing this one. This one was a very unique podcast for me, interviewing uh, a former senator. I mean, that yeah, you know, I don't, I, I would have never thought. I mean, hundred percent honest. And you know, even I'm not even gonna go that back. I'm, I'm just gonna even go in October when I first got the job that I would be interviewing a former senator. So th- this podcast has opened up doors for me that I haven't even imagined, and I'm truly grateful for it and that's why i'm doing my absolute best in pushing this podcast to new boundaries to new frontiers um because i truly do believe that but the potential of not just this podcast but history podcast in general is it's 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 an it's untapped and it's unlimited in my opinion so so please subscribe tonight's history cast wherever you get your podcast feed yes that's right if you if you haven't heard the news Night Sister Cast is officially on all major podcasting platforms. That's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Podbean, which is the hosting server we're using. It's also great too. Samsung, Podchaser. I mean, or we ha- we covered it all basically. So wherever you listen to music, wherever you listen to podcasts, please go search up Night Sister Cast. Hit that follow button. Hit that subscribe button. Hit the little bell for notifications and. Stay tuned for more episodes of this podcast show. Thank you for listening to this episode of Night's History Cast. I very much appreciate it, and I will see you all on the next one. Thank you, everybody.